When we started Hashicorp, we were pretty audacious in our hopes and dreams. We'd rather go big and go home early if it failed than, you know, ramp up and fail 10 years in. Actually, the first year of Vagrant, the entire year, 12 months, there was 500 total downloads. <laughs> and so by any measure, that's a total failure. But I think what sort of kept us going was that, like, we knew it was solving our problems. Me and Armand are both technologists, and so a lot of the early challenges were just about, like, how do you actually inform people of what the tooling does? It really ended up not being a technical problem. It was more of a marketing messaging, like how you educate people about a problem. From GGV, this is Founder Real Talk, where we get real about the challenges that founders and startup executives face and how they've grown from tough experiences. I'm your host, Glenn Solomon, managing partner at GGV Capital. If you like what you hear, please rate and review us on the Apple Podcast app to help others find this podcast. Also, check out Founder Real Talk past episodes including Stuart Butterfield from Slack, Sarah Fryer from Square, Nate Blacharzik from Airbnb, and many others. If you have any questions you'd like us to ask our guests or founders you'd like to hear on this podcast, feel free to email us at founderrealtalk at ggvc.com. Also, I want to tell you about our sister podcast, 996, a bi-weekly show on tech entrepreneurship in China hosted by my fellow managing partner at GGV Capital, Hans Tung, and our colleague, Zara Zhang. In the show, they interview movers and shakers of China's tech industry, as well as tech leaders with a U.S.-China cross-border perspective. It's a fantastic show, and I've learned a ton from these interviews. You can take a listen by searching for 996 in any podcast app. Without further ado, here's today's episode. On the show today, we have Mitchell Hashimoto, the founder of HashiCorp. I've had the pleasure of knowing Mitchell for quite some time. We first met in 2013, around the time of Mitchell's seed round, and GGV invested in HashiCorp's Series A, and I joined the board then in 2014, when the company was five people. Since then, the company has grown incredibly quickly, and it's been a really fun ride. GGV led the Series B subsequently, and more recently co-led the Series C as well. So we're heavily invested in Mitchell's success. Really excited to have Mitchell here to talk about the rise of HashiCorp and how this whole journey has gone. HashiCorp is a company that automates the process of cloud computing for businesses. But Mitchell, first of all, welcome to Founder Real Talk. Really excited to have you. Thanks, this is exciting. So first, can you tell us a little bit about HashiCorp? Maybe the elevator pitch so that everybody understands what the company does. Sure. So the elevator pitch, it, it's hard to make this non-technical, but uh, the way I usually describe it is that we're trying to build a set of automation technologies and tooling to enable companies to adopt the cloud. And I like to say enable companies to adopt it because that also includes you know, the step before that, which is we like to work with their physical data centers and non-cloud systems because mm-hmm. the idea is that they're getting there and it's not this atomic step. So we build tools that that look at that towards the end goal, but work with a variety of, of different environments. So the tools help automate the journey. Yes, yeah. Got it. Okay, we'll put that on pause for a second. Let's talk okay. about you. You've been founding companies since the early days. In fact, <laughs> you're uh, at, at age 12, at least the story is, you founded a Neopets automation company. Tell us a little bit about why you start things, maybe a little bit about that, that experience and, and how it's led you to today. Company... Is as far as basically a PayPal account. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, I, I, so I'm a self-taught programmer, um, 
And I don't know why, looking back, I ever sort of started these little businesses. It's not like I needed money for anything. I wasn't buying anything and you know, I was well provided for, but I just liked solving various problems that I had. And at the time I played Neopets and I was really frustrated by like I felt really repetitive. It felt like I was doing the same thing every day, like for for very little gain. Um, <laughs> Um, and uh, I was like, well, why can't a computer just do this for me? So I wrote software that would play the Neopets games for me, and I would just log in after school and be like, oh, sweet, I have a lot of Neo, you know, no, the currency in Neopets, the Neo points. Like, I have a lot of this now. I could actually have fun. And then I realized, hey, other people might want this. What if I just like put a buy it now button for like twenty five bucks? That worked okay until Neopets figured it out, and then it, it didn't work so good. Whoops. Whoops. <laughs> So automation obsessed is, uh, is is I think you've called yourself automation obsessed. Yes. Yeah, that's sort of self-described. I, I when I look at all the various little things I've done throughout the years, they always tended to be an automation story. Um, not always infrastructure, like the Neopets thing was totally different. I did automated like forum setup software for a while. I did automated course registration, like totally different categories, but. It's always about getting computers to do things that uh, I don't want to do myself. <laughs> I think you told me that story. So when you were at University of Washington and you were trying to get into classes that were hard to get into, uh, you decided to build a program to help you uh, find yeah. out where there were openings and yeah. automate that process. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yep, that's awesome. So you know, pulling on this automation theme, you built Vagrant as your first open source project that became part of HashiCorp while mm-hmm. you were in college. Tell us a little bit about HashiCorp and why you decided to found it when you realized, hey, this this hobby that I have of building automation tools should be a company. Mm-hmm. What was that process like and when did it happen for you? Yeah, I, th- I think I've, I've always also had this trend of being in denial of, of not pursuing what I really obviously should be pursuing. It's like even when I was teaching myself programming, I clearly loved it. All my family was like, "Well, you're obviously going to get into computers." And I was like, "No, I'm going to be a lawyer or something." Like, I don't want to. I don't want to <laughs> do this all day. And I went to computers. And then I made Vagrant, and uh, and I was solving my own problem, open sourced it. And there were so many people who was like, "This is obviously going to be, you know, your startup, your career. This is what you're going to do." And I'm like, "No, I'm going to go work for some other company." And then eventually, it just it sort of becomes so painfully obvious that it's something. I either have to pursue or give up, basically, that I make that choice. And with Vagrant, it was really around the fact that there were so many users and so many downloads, but I had another job and I couldn't commit to it full-time. And it was starting to have have its own costs there. So mm-hmm. yeah, I decided that that was what I love to do. It's I voluntarily went home every night and worked on it until like very early in the morning. And if that's not a sign of sort of passion, then then I don't know what is. So you had a lot of passion. You also brought on Armand as your mm-hmm. co-founder. Tell us a little bit about how that happened. When did you meet Armand, and why did you think a co-founder made sense, and why Armand? Sure. So there was never a HashiCorp in my mind without Armand. Armand and I had been best friends, or, and still are best friends, um, for many years prior to the founding of HashiCorp. Me and him were always talking about all the stuff we were building on our own and ideas we had. Everything we did was together. It was always a duo. And so when I left the company that we were working at first to start HashiCorp, even you know before I left, we had talked about he'll join later. Um, he just wanted to wrap some stuff up. And we balance each other out in, in very important ways. We're both technical, but the way he thinks about technology is very different from the way I think about technology. And I think those come together to form uh, better products. And yeah, I couldn't do it without him. Given that you guys have a friendship, and so you didn't just meet professionally as co-founders, but you really had a deep-seated friendship beforehand. What are the positives of that? 
But as a co-founder and friend, has have there any been any negatives uh, that you know life would have been easier had you not been friends? I feel like it's almost fully positive. I can't think of any negatives. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the positive thing is because we had that friendship before. It's like we we knew each other really well, so there was a lot of trust, a lot of honesty. Um, we could read each other, um, similar to just like a normal relationship. It's like you know you could just kind of tell by body language and. And sort of style, like, are they having a bad day? Like, is this something they don't like? Um, and I think that's really important because startups have so many ups and downs. Uh, that being able to recognize that and trust that your friend and your co-founder, but your friend is going to be there for you, and vice versa, is really helpful. I guess if there was one negative thing, it'd be that. It'd be that I I do feel a strong personal sense of I don't know protection or defensiveness where you know if if Ramon isn't enjoying something or. Uh, if I feel like you know something is is holding him back, then I'll, I'll try to be protective, maybe to the detriment of my own, uh, I don't know, not health, but you know, time management or something. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but that I don't think that's actually been damaging in any way. Got it. Got it. Okay. So you guys come together. You leave your job to start working on this project, and Armand joins. If you go back to that moment in time, what was your vision for HashiCorp, and how has it changed to your vision today? <laughs> It's pretty close, which I'm happy about, but I think, well, it's changed in the sense that it's a lot clearer what we're doing now. But when we started HashiCorp, we still were pretty audacious in our hopes and dreams of uh, we'd rather go big and then and go home early if it mm-hmm. failed than mm-hmm. you know ramp up and fail ten years in basically. And so our mindset then was how do we become? We would like to become the obvious sort of infrastructure tooling choice for any company. It's like it's. You don't think twice about using certain technologies. It's the same way with us. We were hoping, you know, five six years ago, that when you're either starting a new company or you're a pre-existing company adopting cloud, it's obviously HashiCorp tooling that you're using, and that was really the goal. Got it. Okay. Well, speaking of of open source, which is the model you guys have pursued, mm-hmm. you know, Armand once called it. Your your open source projects have been like ten year overnight successes. Yeah, they take a long time up front to get going. Yeah, you know, looking back, I think there's lots of folks who are quite envious of the popularity of a lot of your open source projects. Mm-hmm. But there were years and years where things barely grew. Yeah, tell us about that process and what are the, some of the things you did to try to nurture the community? What gave you hope that you know the hundreds of users would turn into thousands, would turn into tens of thousands of downloads? And how did that process come about for you guys? Yeah, I think a key part is that we're building tools that were our own problems. We were our own user. And mm-hmm. so even when there was only 100 downloads, like the, actually the first year of Vagrant, the entire year, 12 months, there was 500 total downloads. Wow. <laughs> and so by any measure, that's a total failure. But I think what sort of kept us going was that like we knew it was solving our problems. We knew we built something that solved a problem, and we couldn't see anything else that solved the problem the same way. And so... It really ended up not being a technical problem. It was more of a marketing messaging, like how you educate people about a problem. And me and Armand are both technologists, and so a lot of the early challenges were just about like how do you actually inform people of what the tooling does. There's technical stuff too. It takes time to get to certain maturity points that it could be adopted. But the thing that just keeps us sort of toiling on something is um, I don't think it's sunk cost. Um, in my mind, I think it is that we truly believe we built something. Good and useful, and we don't see anyone else hitting that same problem. And maybe, maybe they're just not ready yet. <laughs> okay, but if there were 500 downloads in year one for Vagrant, and you yeah. started launching, you know, 
some other open source projects as well. Mm-hmm. Um, if they were all going to grow at that rate in a linear fashion, we probably wouldn't be talking today, right? <laughs> so at some point, there was an elbow in the curve. What did you guys do to help promote that? And, and tell us about what your time is like as a, a founder of an open source company. How much time do you spend? That's now gone into commercialization, right? So mm-hmm. I want to talk about commercialization in a second, but the nurturing and uh, investment in your open source community seems like a really important part of the business. So tell us yeah. a little bit what, what your job is like as founder in a company like this. Yeah, so the first three years, I mean, actually, this goes before the company was founded. So Vagrant was was made about two or three years before the company was even founded, and and definitely for those three years, but also the first three years of the company, so let's say six years straight, it was just me and Armand flying around dozens of times a year, dozens of conferences a year, getting directly to the user and giving talks about this stuff. And And one of the benefits about open source is you could do that authentically because you're not doing a sales pitch. You're you're just pitching something that you think is a good idea, totally free. Especially when before there was a company, you just want people to use it. And we really did that quite a lot, and that helped get a huge, you know, slope change in our download count. That was super important. We're still very highly engaged with the community. Uh, obviously, it's changed as we've commercialized and grown, and and our focuses have to be on building the company and so on. But I still spend a lot of time on Twitter. I still personally respond to stuff on Reddit and Hacker News and and things like that. And I enjoy it. I mean, I, I think I couldn't let that go because it's such a strong signal to me of how the products are doing. Uh, because that's the user, right? That's the person using it. And if they're unhappy, then I I, I want to be there on the front lines, knowing they're unhappy. Yeah, and you're and you're just because it's free, right? You don't get a free pass. Your open source community is still quite demanding and yeah. is looking, you know, arguably and- more demanding. Okay, so tell us about that. Like, I think some people feel like, well, I can put something out for free and then immediately try to commercialize with something that's way better. Mm-hmm. I see you guys investing very heavily in open source. You know, it's no secret that you're a commercial enterprise. Eventually, you're going to want to try to monetize at least some of the users, but you care a lot about the open source products. You know, you spend a lot of time, resources internally building the open source. So, how do you manage? You know that split screen where you're you're still investing heavily in open source and you want the community to know that, mm-hmm. but at the same time also turning attention to to commercialization. I think one thing that's really interesting about open source communities is they're kind of like free versus ninety nine cents. It's like it's a shockingly high barrier, right? For that, like if you look at an app, there's like the people that'll just download free and there's and will like scoff at ninety nine cents, and there's people like care less about ninety nine cents. And it, open source is very similar in that they're great users. They have a problem that you want to solve. They provide very important early feedback. They're champions. There's so many important parts about an open source community. But at the same time, the moment you try to commercialize some of these people, it's like the world is crashing down on them. And so we took the opposite approach of let's not try to monetize the open source individual and let's monetize the enterprise. And that's helped define our, it's not super clear, but it's clearer boundaries between what we charge for and what we don't. Mm -hmm. Because in my opinion, I think a really common mistake I see open source maintainers, even before companies make, is they see a million downloads. Let's make the numbers easy. They see a million downloads and say, cool, if we could get 1% of those people to pay I don't know, X dollars a month, and that's a pretty successful company, when realistically those million people have already biased towards a type of person who doesn't want to pay you. Mm-hmm. So how do you actually find the market that wants to pay you? And for us, that was the enterprise. The enterprise wants to pay for certain features because they want a certain level of 
integration that's unique. They want a certain level of scale that's unique. They want a certain level of support that they can't expect for free. And so there's an expectation and desire to pay. And in a lot of cases, when you walk into an enterprise customer, they're if, if something's free, they're way more hesitant. That's scarier to them than paying. And so that's the perfect type of market you want to get into. And so that's that's why we maintain both. Got it. And how about your role? You know, when you guys transitioned to commercializing from just open source, did your specific role change? Or if you look at you and Armon in totality as like the founder role, how much do things change when you go commercial? Yeah, I think it changed quite a bit. I think more recently I've Gone to, for example, many many less community events. We've mm-hmm. we've hired more developer advocates, and we tried to enable more of the community to self-run themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, Armand and I have had to spend a lot more time directly in front of customers, explaining that vision to the enterprise market, educating sort of that market, and then that's just externally. I mean, internally in the company, when we switch the commercialization, suddenly there's real marketing and real sales and real customer success, and there's been a lot of internal focus on making those people successful. So. Our roles have shifted a little bit more away from engineering. Okay, so I want to take us back to uh, circa 2000, late 2015, early 2016, when you and Armand, as co-founders, came to the board and said, "You know, we want to hire a senior business executive into the company," and that ultimately culminated in bringing on a CEO, Dave McJanet, which I would say is not Plan A in a lot of a lot of companies with founders as strong as you guys are. Why did you make that decision? And looking back on it, are you glad you did it? I hope you'll say yes. But like, <laughs> what specifically about that decision was hard? And then, what did you get right if things are working? Yeah, it was it was a culmination of a lot of factors. One was just thinking. I think it might have been you who said this. Someone said it. This is basically like what what do you as founders bring to the company that gives your company an edge, and how do you sort of make sure that that's constantly being leveraged? Um, those weren't the exact words at all, but it was something like that. And sounds like something I would say. <laughs> yeah, so, and and you know, me and Armand, what we both bring really is the product division, sort of the engineering culture, the open source culture, and that that sort of thing. And so it's like that's obviously one tiny aspect or one of many aspects of a company. And so how do you actually get to a point where you make that the real power you're pushing into the company? And we couldn't see a way to get there without. Having experience come in to help build out the other parts of the company. That's one one aspect, and the other part is that we could probably learn how to build out a world class sales org and marketing and all this other stuff. Probably, but any part of learning is sort of stumbling along the way, and that's scary. Like as a startup, you want to minimize that as much as possible because you're already like coming from a disadvantage. And so, if we could bring in someone with experience that would stumble less and culturally aligned and understood our vision and open source and so on, then it seemed like a win-win. And then I think the last aspect was honestly me and Armand just didn't enjoy that part of, of being uh, a founder. And, and one of the more eye-opening things to me, being a founder, was learning that I think a lot of people, me included, think that you think that starting a company means that you get to work every day on what you're passionate about. And then the reality is that you get to work every day on enabling others to work on what you're passionate about. And so, with that understanding in mind, is sort of we didn't want to be CEOs. We learned over the years what the responsibilities were, even at that scale, which was tiny. Mm-hmm. Um, and we we saw sort of the writing on the wall of what the future would hold for that position. And both of us were looking at each other like, I don't think it's us. I don't think that's what we do. Right. So yeah, we wanted to bring somebody, if possible. We were, we were very open to the idea that we might not find someone though. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it took a while. 
But yeah. um, I'd say, you know, to add my, you know, summation of what you said, it, it sounds like one thing is really focusing on where do I get the most leverage for my time in a company? How am I going to add the most value? And you guys answered that question, uh, and it wasn't being CEO. Two, you know, you want to do what you really love to do, mm-hmm. and not stumble on things that you don't really know how to do or haven't done before. So like stumble minimization. Yep. And and three, then really maximize for cultural alignment. And I think I think you guys did a great job there with Dave and you know the people Dave has brought in have kind of all kept within that that same cohesiveness of, of, of strategy and culture. So yeah. it seems to have worked really well. Yeah, it's worked really well. And I think in the same way that like us as engineers could walk into sort of any product and be like, no, this is what we need to do now and this is how you do it. And there's a lot of confidence behind the decisions, like from day one of Dave coming in, and Dave isn't, you know, he was very thoughtful about it and consulted us with everything, and we have a great working relationship. But it was one of the same things. He came into the company, and you know, things that we that are obvious to him that were super not obvious to us. He was like, "We need to do this and this and this," mm-hmm. and instantly the company changed almost overnight. So one of the things that's really unique about HashiCorp, you guys run a very distributed business, very yeah. distributed workforce, and you're committed to that. Yeah. Uh, you personally are very committed to that. Tell us a little about what that's like. You know how distributed you really are. Why you think it's an advantage, and what are some of the challenges that arise as a result, and how you how you've dealt with those? Yeah, so we are a remote first company, and I think that's a very important distinction in that, like all our processes and the way we think about how we work and how we hire and things like that are from the expectation that it's remote first. We do have an, one office in San Francisco. It's pretty optional for people to come in. We have about ten to fifteen percent of our employees. Here on any given day, but no no full teams other than legal and finance, pretty mm-hmm. much. Armand's in San Francisco for now. He's moving to Connecticut soon, so both founders and the CEO will be in separate cities. So it's it's great that we've done this up front. And it's funny because it wasn't a conscious decision on day one. It was just it's just how open source works, and so it was almost like a default working behavior when we were just building out product. It was sort of obvious that we would hire the community and. They're anywhere. They're in Chicago. They're in Pittsburgh. They're wherever, and we would just work with them. And then, of course, there was a point at the company where we we realized, like, okay, we have eight employees and we're in seven states. And so, <laughs> is this going to be like, are we committing to this, or how's it going to work? And and we decided to commit to it, and it's been hugely beneficial. I think we've we have great talent. Dave loves to joke that we have this like amazing engineer that's just in a small village in rural like the outskirts of uh, London. And it's like, how can you find someone like that unless, you know, it's like, it's a non starter for him to work anywhere outside of that mm-hmm. village. So, mm-hmm. how can you find someone like that otherwise? And so, talent's a, a big deal. I think culturally, it's really important. The fact that all our processes revolve around the expectation and an understanding that if you want to take an hour out of your day to go pick up your kids from school or go work out or just turn off and just sit on the couch, honestly, for an hour, like that's fine because there's the expectation that you're going to get your work done. Anyway, in your home, so you could do that if that's healthy for you, and I think that reflects very positively on our workforce. There's a lot of challenges too, but I think for the most part, it's been a very positive thing. What are what are some of the things you've done to overcome, you know, the lack of proximity for people? So we do once a year bring everyone together into the mm-hmm. same spot, and that is really important culturally. Um, we also give every team a budget so that individual teams could see each other every quarter. Mm-hmm. So all teams could get together pretty often. And we do all hands every week, and that's always video. We also do an internal chat roulette. 
So there's, uh, I think it's like, I don't know if it's a company, but there's an app, Slack app we use called Donut. And everyone's in there. I'm in there. Dave's in there. person we hired a week ago is in there. And Donut will automatically pair us with another random person every week or every other week. And is it at a set time? You get to schedule on your own. Okay. But it just, Got it. It just puts a Slack message with both of you in there being like, hey, this is person A, this is person B, go, like meet each other. And uh, yeah, I, I had a donut last week with someone who'd started a week earlier, which is kind of a fun experience. That's cool. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about your user conference, HashiConf. You've done three of them annually so far. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember the first, which I attended up in Portland. Yeah. Uh, that was probably 150, 200 people. Yep. You then did one in Austin. Napa first. Sorry, Napa first, yeah. then Austin, which was close to a, like 800 people last year. Yeah. You've got San Francisco coming up, which should be really pretty great. Tell us about why you decided to do an annual conference so early in life of the company and what benefits you've seen from doing it. Yeah, I think the the reasoning changes. So early on, it was really about we knew we had these communities, um, but they were all digital, and we didn't have meetups at the time. We now have we are now also in addition to that have hundreds of meetups worldwide. But we at the t- first conference, we didn't even have meetups, and so the goal of the first one was let's just get these people that are passionate about HashiCorp in the same room, so they could feel that energy and take it back and spread it. And it shifts over time. Like let's just fast forward to this year. Four years later, it's really shifted to there's tons of places you feel that energy. It's now let's learn how people are being successful with it because we're already using it. You're using it. We know you're using it. We know it's great. Uh, hopefully, you know that's the, the mindset. It's let's actually see practical use cases. Let's see trainings. Let's get hands on time with the engineers behind the products. There's also a huge open source aspect of it of, of let's collaborate and plan the future together. Yeah, I think it's switched a little bit. And now you've got thousands of people that want to attend these types of conferences, and, yep. and do you expect you'll keep doing them year after year? Yeah, yeah, definitely. We already have the venues booked out a few <laughs> years, so okay, <laughs> at least the next two years. No, they, they've been really, really great. Though. Yeah, great. Okay, so you know, just giving some perspective to the company, right? When we first invested in 2014, you were five people. You're 300 plus today. Mm-hmm. You're serving. Roughly a hundred of the Fortune 500 as commercial customers. Yeah, you know when you when you come into work each day or work from home each day, <laughs> and you're spending time with uh, as a founder, spending time with enterprise customers, like big big enterprises who are relying now, very meaningfully relying on your software to help them run their computing infrastructure. What kind of burden do you feel? What what is life like for you on a day to day basis? And as you think about the company and the company you want to build going forward from three hundred to wherever you go next, what do you think you need to add to continue to serve the enterprise? It's it's both incredibly exciting and incredibly scary at the same time. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, I love that let's just ship software quickly and and build cool things and you gotta kinda put the brakes a little bit when you realize that it's hard to have like a financial transaction in the U.S. without going through our software. It's like when you think about that, it's like maybe we should yeah. slow down. A Moving little bit. fast and breaking things yeah. may not may not work if you're running like trading systems for large banks. Yeah, yeah. Every time, yeah, every time there's news about another data breach or something, I'm like, please don't be a customer. <laughs> so far, so far, knock on wood. But uh, I think there's that. But I think that one of the great things about a company growing to like sit over 300 now is that I felt like there was way more burden when we were 15. Then when we're 300, because if I felt like I didn't have a day where I was working at 100, 
I felt like you know I left something on the table that the company is really suffering for. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas at three hundred, you still want to do your best, but the idea is that you know you have a lot more people shouldering burden. You have much more work breakdown. There's a lot more trust that I know that customer success is being handled, and I feel good about that. So I could focus on this other thing. And so I think on a day-to-day basis, that burden goes down. But I think it's important to just remember the responsibility that you have when you're serving enterprises. As you've scaled, talk about the the Tau of, of HashiCorp and how mm-hmm. the has the Tau of HashiCorp helped you as you scale to, to keep people cohesive and working together. Yeah, so we have this this document we published really early, 2014, um, called the Tau of HashiCorp, which is a set of principles that describe our methodologies towards product roadmap, product vision, philosophies, basically. And we did it originally as an internal document, so as mm-hmm. we scaled up engineering, that we could all share the same engineering goals. It's actually been really useful as a external customer document because it helps explain why. Like, why did you build Vault in this way? It's like, well, it aligns with this principle, and like, why do you have that principle? And then that explains, like, this is why it's important to us. And so, the, I think the most important principle that really just describes the whole company could be boiled down to one principle, which is workflows, not technologies. Mm-hmm. And it's the idea that we solve problems in a very workflow-centric way. When we looked at Vault, for example, we looked at the secrets management workflow problem. How do how do people and software work through getting a secret, updating a secret, things like that? And we thought about that first, and let's solve that first. And then the technology comes later, and the benefit of that is we've been really, really resilient to technical change. And even in the short history of our company, it's only been six years, but when we founded the company, Containers weren't a mainstream thing. You know, Docker as a company didn't exist. Well, DocCloud existed, but Docker as a company didn't exist. The platform wars hadn't even begun. It was either like you had VMs on on EC2 or you had Heroku. Like there was a wide gap. And nowadays you have schedulers and you have way more platform as service offerings. It's very different. And so throughout all that change, we are seeing really successful deployments of you know Vault, Console, Terraform, so on. Uh, there's people man- using Terraform to manage Docker-only workloads. There's people using Terraform for Kube-only, serverless-only. There's all these different paradigms that are currently active, and I think okay. they'll settle down, but it's kind of chaos in some way right now. But the fact that our tools are still being sort of critically useful to all these companies in these different paradigms, I think, is a testament to that one uh, Tau element. Great. Okay, so we've come to the part of the show which we call the hot seat. Okay. Uh, I'm just going to ask you a couple of quick fire questions Say the first thing that comes to your mind. We'll spend about a minute on each. As a founder, do you have a favorite book or a blog or piece of content that you've read that you'd recommend to others? My favorite blog is, I bet you a lot of founders say this, my favorite blog is, I forgot the name, but it's uh, The Daily Paper, uh, blogged at what, acolair.com or something, but mm-hmm. it's just a daily distillation of an academic, usually a computer science paper. Mm-hmm. And that's just nice just to get a survey of the industry from a technical perspective. So I'd say that's that's pretty good. Okay, great. What's something that you believe in that you think is unique that others may not believe in? I would say it's actually, for our industry, for a highly technical software product, it's thinking about the human that's using the software. I think that when you have engineers building software for other engineers, it's very common to get so wrapped up in the coolness of technology and doing things like, you know, the most cutting edge way that you forget that a person has to use this on a day to day basis. And we really think people first. So I think that's unique. People first, I like it. Speaking of people first, how about a hobby that you have or something that you like to do that helps you recharge 
Obviously, you spend a lot of time thinking about HashiCorp and working on <laughs> HashiCorp activities. Something that allows you to get away and recharge. There's only two things I do other than work, <laughs> and they're they're kind of opposites, but they're both really important. It's either working out, which I definitely am not thinking about work. I'm just thinking about survival, so that's good. And I know you, at least part of your workout includes a Peloton. Sometimes I love Peloton. Yeah, gotta, we got we got to uh, plug another GDV company. Great company, yeah. So uh, I'm either on the Peloton. Do we know if Peloton's using any HashiCorp tooling? I don't know. Okay. I don't know. <laughs> we'll, have to, we'll have to get on that. Yeah. Or total polar opposite. I love video games, so I'm either on the couch doing nothing, playing video games, or I'm working out. <laughs> <laughs> okay, last bonus question for you. You're about to get married. <laughs> Have you gotten anything special for your soon-to-be wife? I've gotten a lot of things special at this <laughs> point. No. Uh, you don't need to disclose. Not that's a secret, I guess, but uh, the thing I'm most excited about, maybe it's a little superficial, but I, uh, I got her, she knows already, she already has them, but... I got her custom made, like custom CAD designed earrings that she's gonna wear oh, on the very, wedding day. Very cool. Yeah, she like she saw something on Pinterest that she really liked, um, but the ones on Pinterest were like ten dollars and super fake. And I went to a jeweler and I was like, "Can we make these with like real diamonds and like make it like nicer?" And it took a while of like actual engineering. Like they couldn't figure out how to hold. The diamonds in the right way and all this stuff, and they ended so up making. Did you it build work. some automation software for no, that? <laughs> no, that was all them. They they had the CAD specialists and they were trying different things, but they turned out amazing. I think, and that I think that'll be really special, like decades out. Fantastic. Well, Mitchell, this has been super fun. Thanks for spending time on Founder Real Talk. Cool. Thanks. You've been listening to Founder Real Talk. If you like what you heard, please rate and review us on the Apple Podcast app to help others find this podcast. If you have any questions you'd like us to ask our guests or founders you'd like to hear on this podcast, feel free to email us at founderrealtalk at ggvc.com. We're produced by Ted Karstensen and his team at HeavyBit. We want to thank Ted for his support. Our theme song is by Grapes. GGV Capital is a global venture capital firm that invests in local founders. As a multi-stage, sector-focused firm, GGV focuses on seed to growth across consumer, social and internet, enterprise cloud, and frontier tech. The firm was founded in 2000 and manages $6.2 billion in capital across 13 funds. Past and present portfolio companies include the likes of Affirm, Airbnb, Alibaba, Didi, Grab, Hellobike, HashiCorp, House, Keep, Namely, New, Opendoor, Peloton, Poshmark, Slack, Square, Wish, and many more. The firm has offices in Beijing, San Francisco, Shanghai, and Silicon Valley. Learn more at ggvc.com or follow us on Twitter at, at GGV Capital or GGV Capital on WeChat.